Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Front Porch Discourse. My name is Ian. I'm here with John. RP is sick. We're refereeing soccer or both. Um, today, we are talking about... Uh, we gotta get in on this women's soccer thing. It's it's popular now. We'll see if it lasts. But that's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about <laughs> is kind of how insane a lot of the U.S. soccer media went um, in the lead-up to slash during the World Cup. And there are two people in particular uh, I want to point out, and there's probably a third who I would point out if I followed them on Twitter anymore. Um, later on, uh, after about 15 minutes on that, you know, I was pretty hot on that issue about a week ago. It was going to be like a half-hour topic, maybe a full episode topic. They won the World Cup. There's been a general consensus, so I'm a little bit less hot, but I still think it's it's worth talking about. Um, then we're talking FC Cincinnati, why they've been completely terrible at this in ways that other expansion sites haven't been. Or arguably have been, but have looked better, slash more exciting, slash whatever. We'll get into that. And at the end, we are going to tease a business issue that John in particular is dealing with, but I think is is a problem sort of America soccer-wide. But we're going to leave the bulk of that discussion for when RP can join us, because he is a businessman more so than we are. Anyway, so... Uh, I just talked for two minutes. John, introduce yourself. Hello. Uh, it's good to be back. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to mention that because I don't care. But You know? <laughs> well, I'm going to mention it because I can and because I uh, allegedly care. Maybe I do care. Okay. I don't even know. Anyway, uh, yeah. it's, it's hot. It's Texas. I had tacos. We had some podcast juice. Life is good. Podcast juice? Podcast. Do you mean alcohol? Yes, of course I mean. This is a Christian podcast. You're not allowed to drink <laughs> alcohol. Uh, you should have told me about that before I signed on, man. <laughs> I'm not retroactively committing to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure this um, is one of those podcasts where we say words like fuck. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of explicit tags on our podcasts. Um, but yeah. Anyway. So, first things first, women's soccer. We've won the World Cup again. Um, and Jill Ellis is still somehow the worst coach at this. Even after two World Cups, there were lots of highly upvoted comments on now. Okay, maybe we shouldn't go on the Reddits, but I do, and you do too. That are like, you know, we still won despite Jill Ellis, not because of her. And just before I get into my rant on that what do you think of that line of reasoning i think it's bullshit i mean i i'm pretty sure the article i wrote four years ago the gag article for that abandoned side project satire site because let's be honest uh nutmeg did it far better than i ever could have hoped to and nutmeg news is still amazing but i wrote something along the lines of like Six weeks after USA win third World Cup, fans still unconfident in Jill Ellis' abilities to bring home the trophy. (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's it's just as relevant now. People are using the exact same stupid line now that they did back then. And what really gets to me is that there's sort of an oft-repeated line that I sort of half agree with, half don't, that the rest of the world is catching up to the United States and women's soccer, which I feel like that premise... The reason I take issue with it is is the premise to me is flawed because the U.S. was never actually like so far ahead of everybody. 
at women's soccer. Like, we're really good at it. We're much better at it than men's soccer, obviously. But it's not like they're, they've always been light years ahead of everybody. You, like, in 91, it was an upset that they won the World Cup. In 95, they got um, uh, killed in the semis by Norway. Uh, uh, in 2003, they got killed in the semis by Germany. In 2007, they got killed in the semis by Brazil. In 99, it was tough. They went down, I believe, it was either 2-0 or 2-1 to to Germany in the quarters. And it took Christine Lilly heading a uh, China header off the line. That would have been a gold, uh, gold medal winning goal for China. And then mm-hmm. winning in penalties and instantly Brianna Scurry coming way off her line to save that one penalty. Um, which is no longer uh, possible, basically. Yeah. And... Um, you know, 11, they make it back to the World Cup final for the first time in 12 years, and they dominate a game that they lose in penalties. Mm-hmm. Um, in 15, they don't dominate their way through until they get to Germany in the semis. They and just then, turn it on. But, like, these last two World Cups, last these last three World Cups, you could argue, depending on how you feel about the 11 run, has been the most dominant stretch of the U.S. women's national team in World Cups. Well, I will say, I don't like. I mean, no one's though, ever won back to back. Ninety-one. So, yeah, they won six games. All six games they played, they won all six. No draws, no losses. Twenty-five goals for, five goals against. With Anson Dorans, the legend, yeah. in charge. This year, I gotta say, is as dominant of a run in that they they conceded. three times in the knockout round and that was the only goals they conceded they never conceded more than one goal in a game and so i just i don't know that it's possible to say maybe it is but i i just i find it hard to square the opinions of the rest of the world is catching up to the united states and women's soccer which i don't think if anything, they have pushed themselves further ahead these last eight years than they had ever been. Um, but and then also say that this this team is so talented that it doesn't matter who you you could put me as the coach, and and they would have won the World Cup. Which which they they've always been super talented. Like I, there was a, a small nadir after '99, sort of when Mia Hamm and Christy Lilly and all of them were getting old and retiring, um, but they were still like you know two teams worth of talent level in those years. But they for some reason fell in earlier stages, and you could argue that that Germany was better than any any challenger has been this time. Although, I don't know. I mean, that's to me, that's kind of hindsight by a suit, basically because France didn't beat them. France came in, like, according to the women's soccer insiders, as, like, the team that was going to win, in all likelihood, not the United States. Hmm. And, like, I don't, I, my overall point around this whole discussion is I think... A lot of the U.S. soccer media, and I'll point to Charles Bohm and Kim McCauley as my two targets, but there are others. Um, if you were kind of following them going into the Women's World Cup, you would have had a worse understanding of how that was going to play out than if you were just a casual viewer who had last seen the national team at the last World Cup. And I think there are a lot of reasons behind that, and that might just be uh, one of the anti-benefits 
of one of the drawbacks of being an insider. But what do you think about all of that, essentially? I think one way to frame this that is my own personal view on this is that as we've seen, especially compared to 2015, it feels like the rest of the world is taking the Women's World Cup more seriously. More countries are actually, like, trying with their women's programs than ever before. Whether that means... I don't think they're necessarily catching the United States. I think maybe the gap between USA and, like, 10th place is smaller than it used to be. It's simply because more teams are starting to take it seriously. But it's like, USA is still clearly at the front of the pack, but... There's no longer USA and then, like, a few other teams and then the rest of the world. There's, like, a good dozen or so core teams not far behind the USA that you can go, oh, yeah, Scotland, they're taking it seriously. England, they're taking it seriously. Canada is still doing really well. Japan is still doing really well. Sweden is better than ever. Yeah, that's, that's pretty fair. And that's the way I would think of it more is yeah, that... Yeah, that's reasonable. Because in, in 91, there was... It was, you know, who's going to win? The United States, Norway, or China? It was basically one of those three. And then in 95, you know, uh, one more team came in. I think Germany started getting pretty good. Um, 99, Germany... Um, sorry, 99, Germany was starting to get pretty good. In 95, Sweden was pretty good. Um, 99, uh, Brazil added themselves to the, to the list of teams. Now we've got, yeah, we have a bunch of teams that can give the United States a good game. Um, but still probably, yeah, you're right. More challenging opponents, but still they're not as good as Germany 03, Brazil 03, 07, Germany 99 to 07 to 2011, frankly. Um, maybe not as good as Japan 11, um. That was sort of a weird one. That was uh, a weird one. Because they weren't supposed to... Because they were supposed to... I mean, Germany came into 11. They were like the heavy favorites. I think they were... They might have even been favored over the field in that one. Uh, well, they're, they're, Japan in 2011 just had the Fukushima tsunami nuclear fallout disaster earthquake mess. That's right. And That's right. We've we've seen in the past that like a bad moment can light a fire in a national team in a way that's really hard to explain otherwise, other than like unbelievable national civic pride to like go out there and kick some ass for your country in a time of need. That's right, and actually, I because I was remembering without remembering why I was remembering that I felt weird about the twenty eleven final, even just watching it. Kind of like I like I expect the United States to win, and they ended up not, and that was surprising, obviously. Um, but like not feeling terribly bad that they didn't win, and now I remember that's that's the exact reason why it was the whole that whole Fukushima thing kind of spurring Japan on, and it's just meaning so much more to them than I think it would have meant here. This World Cup win, I it's close. I don't think it's quite there, but it's it's close to meaning about as much here as uh, ninety nine did. Yeah. Because even 2015, it still felt kind of like a niche event. Yeah. And and that's it was utter because, like, it was in Canada, so a lot of the games were, like, afternoon or evening games. And you had so much stuff, like, directly competing up against it. This time around, it was, like, because it was out of the way, it felt like more of an event. more Because I don't know what it is, but whenever stuff is, like, held on European time... 
because it doesn't really conflict with anything else going on, it just has that tendency to grab attention. In the same way that I feel like the 2006 Winter Olympics were like really a big deal, the London Olympics were a big deal for their time. There might be something to that, or I might just be waffling, but, like, yeah. And, uh, I don't feel... Yeah, the, the, the amount of attention people were paying, the amount of media hype for this World Cup feels a lot bigger than four years ago. A lot bigger. Yeah. Um, so... Well, so, what do you, what do you have to say on... On, on the media fronts, do you agree with my point that if you were following certain women's soccer insiders, you would have had a worse understanding of how this was supposed to go than if you weren't? Uh, yeah, and I, I think that comes back to Jill Ellis, where it's like, maybe we're not giving Jill Ellis the credit she's due, because it doesn't really matter what we think of her, the aesthetics of her tactics, or the... Uh, formation or roster choices or the players she calls up in camps like we second guess jill ellis about as much as we would second guess jurgen klinsman except that jill ellis is brought back brought home back-to-back world cups and maybe maybe at this point it's time to go she knows what she's fucking doing like we we might all think we know it better but she clearly knows what she's doing and because there's there's a certain there's ego management that's part of the job with any yeah um any sports team um and that probably more than anything with a really really highly talented women's soccer team where legitimately all 23 players could say hey i deserve you know i'm good enough to be not just a starter but a star at the world cup and you have to tell 12 of them it's like hey listen there are only 11 spots in the field and for that to not sink a locker room for that to not. And I think, you know, the players themselves do a really good job of that, but it's, it's difficult to, to, to be Lindsay Horan sitting on the sidelines and be like, okay, this is, this is, I, I might, I'm probably the best player because they all, they all think that they're the best player because that's what you have to be, to be as good to, to be good enough to be on the women's national team, you have to think that you're the best player. Um, but to be able to get everyone to buy in is not is not easy. And there's only a certain amount of coaches that can take that amount of talent and be able to make that happen. Um, and she's now done it twice. And people will bring up the 2016 Olympic quarterfinal defeat. They'll be like, aha, but... The United States had gone to the semifinals of every single major tournament until that, when they lost to Sweden in penalties, which technically isn't a loss, but whatever. They went out on penalties to Sweden, which could happen at any time to anybody in a game that they dominated, by the way. Um, And Sweden is no fucking slouch. They beat the United States fairly regularly and play them well fairly regularly. Like, this last game is the most dominant game I've seen them play against Sweden in, like, ten years. And it was still a one-goal game. Yeah. Or was it two goals? No, I think they won that two-to-zero? Yeah, it was two-zero. I think it was two-to-zero. Svaria. Yes. But Um, either way, like, penalty kicks is is just game theory and chaos. That's what it really is. And, like, 
It took penalties for Brazil to beat Australia that year. It took penalties for Sweden to beat Brazil that year. Like, shit gets random when you go to the spot. And, you know, under Jill Ellis, they've got two Women's Gold Cup championships. They've got uh, two World Cup titles. They've got an Algarve Cup. Uh, They've got... I don't know how much weight we want to put on She Believes because it's a three-game friendly series, but, like, even still. Jill Ellis has, as a coach, won a shocking amount of games. In 127 games in charge, she's won 102. Like, only the legendary Tony DiCicco has won more games, and the only other coach to beat... Jill Ellis on uh, win percentage is Pia Sundhage, who coaches Sweden now. Right. Like, she, Jill Ellis is firmly in the top, easily within the top five all-time greatest coaches in the women's game. Like, losing seven games in five years in charge and 127 played, seven Losses. Yeah, and uh, in the last—that's absurd. And in the last two World Cups, uh, fourteen games, thirteen wins, one draw. Just, just want to put. Yeah, that, yeah. Like, like I, I think I even made the point that Jill With, like, Ellis two gets, gimme games. Yeah, Jill Ellis continuously takes a squad with constantly changing players. Like, yeah, there was a good bit of overlap between this tournament and the last one, which you'd expect for the champion. But there's also like. A good number of players who didn't get called up again. Like, Amy Rodriguez didn't play in the World Cup. Or uh, Casey Short didn't even get called up into the World Cup. Players who have a history with the team. Lynn Williams, she wasn't with the World Cup squad. Like McCall Zerboni. Jill Ellis, yeah. Lots of players. Lots of really good, like, world-class players. Jill Ellis puts a team together, throws it out there. And they win the World Cup. Yeah. People always bitch like, oh yeah, uh, you know, Jurgen Klinsmann might be a really great coach, but he can't get his squad to execute in those moments of real pressure. Okay, let's apply that exact standard of logic to Jill Ellis. And if you can't call turning up the dial to 13 every World Cup final, you know, grace under pressure, then I don't know what the hell you can call it. Like... I think it's it's absurd to not recognize what she's doing as just dominance and brilliance at a level that a lot of other countries will not be able to match. Yeah, and I think there there's a worry that they're relying too much on their athleticism. It's kind of a, a constant worry about the women's national team. And I think that is kind of fair, but it's also difficult to ignore um, in the women's game where... Um, it, it, it's it's hard not to use the weapon of, hey, I can just throw this overlap pass to Crystal Dunn and she's going to outrun you and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, but there's also, I mean, there's not like not technical players. I mean, how many fucking amazing, technically, like technically amazing volleys did Roosevelt hit? I mean, that generation of player is coming. Um, that, that age group is all yeah. supremely technical. Um, so not only are we going to be able to out it. <laughs> I mean, you look at like Morgan Bryan or Julie Johnston, mm-hmm. 
and you gotta be like, yeah, these, these, and, and also, like, part of a coach is ensuring your squad is match fit. Like, we've seen coaches get fired because their players weren't yeah. match fit. And, like, making sure your squad can run another team down for 90 minutes week in, week out, that's part of what it means to be a great coach if you're running the training sessions to get every single drop of energy out of your players for every minute of every game. Like, it's another thing that male coaches get praised or criticized over, and we're just raking Jill Ellis over the coals because of it. Like, it it, it doesn't make any sense. And I I will say this is... I'm going to call this about 77% off topic. Yeah, 77% off topic. Uh, This is just because last year I got to uh, write for the WPSL and working with all of them. And one player in particular who just tore it up in the WPSL, Uchenna Kanu, who's also playing for the Southeastern University Southeastern Fire in Lakeland, Florida. She made her debut age 21 for Nigeria in their first World Cup. Uh, was that, would that be their first Women's World Cup? I think it no, is. No, Nigeria has nope. made it all the They've time. They've been to every yeah. single World Cup. <laughs> yeah. They were the first team they they played yeah. in 99. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, like, whatever. This, yeah, this, this player, uh, you know, she's an NAIA school, and she was in the, the WPSL last year. She played for her country in the World Cup, and I was covering her, and I interviewed her a few times. It's like, I've never met her in person. I've only spoken to her via email, but I feel proud that, that this this girl that I was paying, following so closely all last summer, she was there. It just feels good. Well, there you <laughs> go. Um, but yeah, back on well, topic. Well, I will say, yeah, so it's, okay, so... To push back on our love fest for Jill Ellis, it's easy to say this after she, after uh, she won the World Cup. But if you want, like, I mean, I was, I've been, I mean, no one follows me on Twitter, but I've been on Twitter being like, hey, you guys are being ridiculous, talking shit about Jill Ellis. Literally, didn't she just win the World Cup? It's like we're we're treating her like like uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, the Klinsman comparison is apt. I mean, we're treating her like Klinsman. Klinsman uh, didn't didn't do what i mean didn't do what jill ellis just did so he didn't take the national team to 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 it, we i mean i don't expect him i wouldn't expect any coach to take the, the men's national team to you know to the final or anything but he didn't take them to anywhere that they had not been before so and this team has now won two world cups in a row and um not only has the u.s had the U.S. never done that before, no one had ever done that before, and not even on the men's side. It had been since the 30s, I believe, since someone won consecutive World Cups, um, at least according to J.P. Della Camera on that. If I get proven wrong, that's just what happens. So, uh, I think that's enough. Until, well, I might until as well just look. go and take a look at that for you. Yeah, it was Italy. 34-38, Italy won back-to-back, Brazil 58-62, one back-to-back, and that is it. Okay. So not since 1962 Brazil right? did it happen. Yep. Okay. And that yeah. was the Brazil that, that was, won that was, three that was out Pele's of four. That was Brazil. And, yeah. Pele, yeah. Carlos Alberto, uh, like, 
that that was the Brazil of that just the Punta de Lanza Brazil that just was absolutely lethal. Absolutely. So let's move on. All right. John Leonard, why does FC Cincinnati suck? Hmm. <laughs> Let me take a look. <laughs> Do they suck? Well, they have won two games since March. They uh, got smited in the Open Cup by St. Louis FC. Uh, Kikutamane leads them with four goals, only three in league play. They've scored... 16 goals this season. Uh I can't recall. Do you know uh do you know who's uh like the 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 top goal scorer that that guy the 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 Charlie something in in the black and gold the other other LA team. How many goals he got? I'm talking about Vela. Carlos Vela has like a million goals. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he has 19. He has more than Cincinnati's Good entire Lord. team. Is that are you? Sh- is that real? Does he have nineteen goals? Yeah, yeah. Cincinnati have eighteen in MLS. Carlos Vela has nineteen in MLS. Holy shit! Um, Carlos so Vela no, yeah. alone does more offensively than all of FC Cincinnati. So. So let's yes, let's let's Expan- actually break it down. Expansion teams usually suck, but well, some expansion teams usually suck. So, okay, ex- if you're coming from if you're coming from a lower league, you you usually suck. And for a long time, even if you weren't coming from a yeah. lo- lower league, you sucked because you weren't Atlanta and you weren't LAFC. This is kind of a new thing. Expansion teams being pretty good, um, are really good in their first year. Yeah. So. so Cincinnati isn't breaking new ground by being terrible. Like if you go back to the 05 season, the first year of uh, RSL and Chivas USA, and you'll see some pretty pitiful numbers. Um, the only problem is like, so you spend all this time and you spend all this money assembling one of the greatest USL teams ever to, to, to whatever, yeah. raise their game or something. I don't know what the to hashtag crush this league. Um, yes. And then you come to MLS and you, and you come to MLS and you don't use any of it. And what do I mean by that? So going back through expansion teams that came up from a lower league, um, not none of them officially came up from a lower league, but all of you know we all know what none of that matters. Um, Cincinnati is sitting here with the third, the American version of promoted, aka yeah, exactly. So Cincinnati is sitting here with the third fewest. Probably now second fewest after this last week because I haven't I had to not take that into account. None of that matters. Uh, second fewest percentage of minutes played by players that were already on their team in the last season. Um, so, but you look at who's the fewest. Okay, Seattle and Montreal. Okay, that's fine because they both had pretty good seasons. Obviously, Seattle went to the playoffs. Um, Montreal uh, and actually I kind of cheated with Montreal because I included Patrice Bernier who actually who hadn't played for Montreal for like ten years. I counted him as a former Montreal player, so that that's like much. If you don't include Bernier, that's that's much lower. But I also think it's kind of cheating, including Adi and Alashe, who they were acquired as like an MLS team, but played for the USL team. So like you know, it you can't make exceptions on this. I just went with whoever had been on the team before. Um, 
And then you got Port you got yeah. Portland at twenty. But even like even ignoring the the number of minutes played by established players at those teams, Montreal finished with forty two points in thirty four games. Portland was just outside the playoffs with forty two points. Vancouver was bad, but they were at twenty eight points in thirty four games. Seattle was good. Orlando, we, we thought of, like, underwhelming. 44 points in 34 games. Minnesota, 36 points in 34 games. So all of them, except for Vancouver, were comfortably above a point per game. Cincinnati's at 14 points through 19. And the reason I bring up the percentage of minutes is because you can, yeah, you can go a couple of ways. You can go the Seattle route. And incidentally, like, they actually had a cut, like, Roger Levesque, um... That that number would that percentage would have been much higher. Levesque only played like one game. He was injured all year, but he ended up being really important for Seattle later. Um, but you know they were really good, and they had a especially lot, especially of... in the Open Cup. Yeah, that's right. They won the Open Cup that first year, and he was really important for that for that that effort. Um, so you have Seattle, mm-hmm. who you know they were they were really good. They brought a lot of guys in who if they they. Even if they weren't part of the Sounders before, they were kind of part of the Seattle soccer community, mm-hmm. like Casey Keller. Yeah, um, and it 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 worked out really well for them, and obviously they were good. So you can either go the we're going to build a pretty good team. Montreal did that too, by the way. They they built a pretty good team. They had a they had a good coach. They had a plan. They went away from that plan immediately. They fired Jesse Marsh after what was at that time the third most impressive expansion season in MLS history. Um, and I was waving the banner being like, Hey, someone hired Jesse Marsh for like years after that. And then Red Bulls did. And then now he's going to coach like some champions league team probably next year. Yeah. Um, so good job by me. Uh, uh, or, or you can go like the Vancouver, you can go the Vancouver, Minnesota route where you suck, but you're number one, you're entertaining. And number two, you're putting out players that your fans already know and kind of love which was the case with Minnesota. They brought back Ibarra essentially just as like fan service. And it, worked, it ended up working out really well. He's still on the team and he's still an important part. They brought in Christian Ramirez. They brought up Justin Davis, who was their their captain for however long. Um, and they brought up Brent Coleman to be to stabilize a center back situation that was pretty miserable from the very beginning. And they scored a lot of goals. They allowed a lot of goals, but they scored a lot of goals and it was fun. Um, and, you know... You you can go that route. So this weird Cincinnati kind of they've they've gone the worst of both worlds. They fewer than twenty percent of their minutes are played by players that they had previously, and most of it is by Justin Hoyt and Emmanuel Desma, um, with Adi coming in third, I believe, which is not uh, not really ever has been like a Cincinnati hero, um, like some of these other guys have been, and they and still they suck. Yeah. So. That's that's where we are. Yeah. So you're not you're not really building a connection with your current team with your fans, and you suck. Yeah. And the thing <laughs> is, is they compared to, I'm gonna say even every every other team had a plan except maybe kinda sorta Orlando, and I think if any team with their expansion era in MLS is the most, like, immediately uh, comparable 
it's got to be Orlando because, like, they kept about the same number of players, but they tried to give them fewer and fewer minutes. They kept the same back room for the most part, same front office, same, you know, tactical side of things, and tried to do their USL thing in MLS by just grabbing what they figured were, like, MLS players to fill in the gaps without actually buying proven MLS players so much as random guys from USL or college ball or Switzerland or France second division or the German second division or, you know, guys who'd been cut all over the place like both teams took a real haphazard piecemeal roster building approach that's like trying to say we know what we're doing without actually knowing what we're doing but it's 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 like it's like a it's like a teenager with a chainsaw yeah they might actually know what they're doing but i don't trust them get that chainsaw away from them <laughs> and at least orlando had kaka yeah they did do that who was who was like a i like i like me some emmanuel ledesma but Emmanuel Ledesma is no caca. Just like if you ignore all if you ignore all the numbers as you were saying before, there are lots of ways to build an MLS team. If you're coming up from USL, you might have a, an academy. You probably don't. Uh, you don't have like a mature one unless you're like North Carolina or Sacramento, basically, um, who've been building their academy for years in various forms. Um, you're probably not. You're not going to have that set up. So it's going to be hard to build depth through that. That's that's a really easy way to grab depth, cheap depth that if you if you need it, and like with potential, incidentally, um, you don't have that route, so that's okay. That's out. And and depth that knows your system, right? So either way, but, but right. So right now there is no system uh, for Cincinnati. They had a they had I guess a plan, but they just kind of went away from it immediately after ten games when Alan Koch wasn't winning the league already, which I still don't understand. I, this is the biggest, because Minnesota, Orlando gave Heath a year and a half. Um, Minnesota has now given Heath two and a half years. Now, is it a good idea to, for whether Heath is a good idea or not, is neither here nor there. At least with both of them, there was a plan. And with Minnesota, there's been this very concrete three-year plan, which I think is is smart, even if it's not necessarily been had, paid off as, as well as it could have. But they said, okay, we're going to go in. Um... Okay, we're gonna we're gonna we are gonna go the Europe route. We're gonna buy a lot of those players and bring them over. Oh, uh, that's not working. Let's drop all those guys. Let's drop, um, um, uh, Demidov and um, oh, some guy that starts with a K. I don't. Oh my God, I forgot about that guy. He was God awful. He, he was he. It was it was immediately off. It, uh, I can tell you. It was immediately clear that Demidov wasn't MLS standard when um, all of Portland was running around him like it was nothing. Um, in that first half of his MLS life, I texted Magnus. I was like, Demidov is my little brother. I was like, Demidov is just bad at this. And uh, he continued to be. But anyway. But that's so, Kim Kadri, the, uh, the that's, uh, that's, Danish guy. That's the guy I was thinking of. So you bring all these European players. Okay, that's not working. Let's drop all of them. Let's use our, our NASL players and and we'll, to stabilize it, we'll play Ramirez more, play Ibarra more. They didn't... I mean, they won some and they were exciting and they scored a lot and they gave up a lot. 
and that was kind of fun. Um, and their fans are happy. And but they actually did better in the second half of the season than in the first half. Yes, absolutely. Um, so they had a plan, they pivoted, they started a new plan, but basically it was all around, okay, we're going to figure out what works, like sort of what our solid rotational players need to be so that we know what to get when we do make a big buy. So that's sort of what Cincinnati was kind of trying to do, except they haven't gone away from the players that they brought in. They've stuck with the European players that aren't working out like Bertone and the MLS kind of role players like Uyoa and um and and Hagland and they made a big buy on Hagland which is not working out cuz you know for a variety of reasons and so they still haven't gone to their their yeah their USL base which won you know lots and lots and lots of soccer games last year and it was kind of my idea i what i sort of assumed when they were doing that it's like you know what we're going to we're going to take this team, we're going to put some pieces around it, but largely it's going to be this team that plays in the MLS for us, and then we're going to see what works and what doesn't, and then we're going to buy accordingly in the next summer, next winter, we're going to suck, but our fans are going to like us. Um, but no, now Koch is gone, the guy who coached that team. And then it was really weird, the press release that, that, that they that they released when they fired him it was like you know he was never really good anyway he never took us past like the second round of the playoffs it's not like he won like 90 points with us last year that didn't happen so he was just he was terrible the whole time so it's like okay so what were you doing bringing him up in the first place and giving him yeah. eight games whatever um so now they're saying they've narrowed their search down to one person who's going to take over for a year and a half which, okay, um, so they're still not they're still not building for the yeah. long term. <laughs> I mean, I just if I were Cincinnati, and they won't be building for the long term until well into until, year three. So, if I were a Cincinnati fan, I would just be insanely frustrated. It's like, well, what happened to this team? Like, I don't care if we only get thirty points in MLS. I would rather just watch the team that we had last year. You know, try. Um, and by the way, 30 points is like, you know, in your first year, I know Atlanta and LAFC have kind of set the new expansion bar, but it's no, like, it's okay to start off slow and figure out what you need later. I mean, that's, that's, uh, cause Orlando did kind of the opposite. They, they brought in a lot of expensive players. And so that kind of fucked them over when they tried to pivot two years later, but then realized they didn't have any money to do that with. And mm-hmm. so, like, if Orlando had hit on two out of three of their DPs instead of one out of three, maybe they make the playoffs once instead of zero times. So there, there is that. And also, I got to say that Orlando had, well, they, they changed a bit of their, like, soccer operation side of things when they moved up. And that kind of never really hit right. And when they poached Luis Muzzi from FC Dallas at the end of last season, like, Orlando looks good. Like, right now, Orlando looks good. They're not like a for-sure-gonna-make-the-playoffs kind of team, but they look the best they've ever looked in MLS. Yeah, if they just sit dumb Dwyer. You're seeing now, at least with there, there's progress. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
And, you know, you can you can agree or disagree with Minnesota's plan, but I would say for the most part it's it's worked out. I think their roster looks really good. I, I just think uh if there's a deficiency, it's maybe at left back and I don't know, maybe their goalkeeper maybe they need a second center back, I don't know, but like I would, you know, like them to make noise in the playoffs. Obviously I picked them to do really well. But like they they built a solid roster and just just to I, I don't care that's if I am a fan, I honestly don't care if we suck. I just care if we have a plan. And right now, it just looks like Cincinnati doesn't have a plan, and that's 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 the biggest thing. And it's not like novel to say that, mm-hmm. like <laughs> yeah. Um, but just to 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 break it down to its yeah, we're not breaking ground no. here. But that this is a team that is trying to wing it in year one and. There's no vision whatsoever to be found, and it's gonna be some Orlando-y chaos for a couple years before they kind of decide what they're gonna do and fucking do it. The good news is that they didn't go out and buy someone really expensive who didn't work. Um, You could argue that Nick Hagland isn't working um, at the amount that they paid for him, but I would argue back it's like well if if they get someone else if they get a second pretty good center back um and they have they have waston but i guess they don't have the the d mid in front of him and they certainly don't have anything going forward so if they had any of those guys maybe maybe it works out um i just don't understand again i well uyola hasn't worked out where they wanted him to work out again you have all these players who are so promising in usl or at least could could provide good good depth for you but like i yeah i don't know it's it's especially because it's frustrating it is frustrating and i hate to belabor this point but you are you are so good in usl if you just bring that team up if you just bring that team up your fans even if again even if you only win eight games or whatever or six games um which is bad but like at least your fans are like, hey, I I, I know this team. I uh, I've I root for these guys in good times. I'll root for these same guys in bad times. They're not rooting for the same players, and it's 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 tough to build a connection with a team that is all new players and they all suck. And there isn't a coach because the coach that you had is gone now. And now what? Um, I guess you just wait for the stadium to come, and then hope that kickstarts things. It's 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 a rough start. It's Minnesota, but without the the promise behind Minnesota. It's Minnesota like, without a plan. Minnesota was like, yeah, we're we're, yeah. It's Minnesota without a plan. It's Minnesota without a rudder, and it's Minnesota where it took them a really long time to decide who they were going to put in charge, and they're halfway through their first year, and they've only just now decided that Gerard Nightcamp is going to be the guy, and. He's not going to become full-time until August because he's still working at Zvola. Which is, which like, is crazy even, to me. Even, even when they pick a good guy, <laughs> like, he, they're not going to have a full-time technical, or full-time, essentially, general manager. It doesn't really matter. Technical director, general manager all means the same thing in this league. But they're gonna, not going to have that guy full-time until August. So that guy isn't going to start, like, living around the youth teams 
After this current window is closed, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So he's going to miss a window, and then he's, like, away from the youth teams a lot, away from their academy that they actually have and actually run. I I honestly think they might have fared better just, like, halfway through this year, just being like, you know what? We're not going to get any better, so let's just start, let's cut and start hiring backroom staff and not really adjust any of the tactics until, you know, this transfer window. See if bringing in and shuffling some pieces around helps out in the first transfer window and reevaluating at the end of the year and then cut half the roster like most teams in MLS do come December. But they're, like, six months ahead of schedule. Right. It's weird. I don't like it. Well, at least it. there's that. At least you're... At least they're ahead of schedule on, on one thing. Yeah. For now. They'll find a way to fuck it up. <sighs> I had Cincinnati second to lowest tier, because uh, I assumed they had a plan. I, I didn't have them in the lowest tier, because I assumed they had a plan. Um, yeah. And I guess we were wrong. I guess I was wrong. That's okay. I'll take solace. In... It's always one or two teams a year that make everybody look stupid. Yeah, well, I don't... I think a lot of people had Cincinnati at the bottom and were, were right about that. They probably knew more about the situation than I did. Um, the one that made me feel stupid... The one that is currently making me feel stupid, I guess, is SKC. Yeah, I don't get what's... MLS is always weird and this year is no different. Except we're seeing a different team dominate. At least I had LAFC in my tier one. I had them right there with the... Uh... Well, yeah, so did everybody. I don't think that's true. I think a lot of people were worried about the, them not having uh, defensive midfielders. They don't need them because they'll just score seven goals a game. So I just kind of figured that was the plan. Most, most... Yeah, it doesn't matter if you give up four if you score seven, yeah. Mostly I just had a lot of faith in Bob Bradley, and I think that faith has paid off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, speaking of, like, MLS 1.0 coaches coming back for a, a different spell, like, I, I, I honestly think for New England to go and get Bruce Arena and to just sort of say, hey, Bruce, do Bruce Arena things. You're in charge now. Make it work. We broke it. Fix it, please. Like, of all the guys you could find to fix it. Bruce Arena might be second only to Bob Bradley. Yeah. Like, we're already seeing New England look a lot less bad after a month of Bruce things than, like, they're undefeated in seven. Yeah. This is after Brad, this is after Brad Friedel saying, hey, I can't, I can't win with this roster, even though you've spent, that was the thing. New England had spent a lot of money, a lot of players over these last few years like kind of sneakily they went out and got a lot of tan level players like million dollar players yeah um and for them to just all not work seemed pretty unlikely uh so it it was that um there's another team that that was doing this i think i think colorado there were a lot of players i i kind of like genuinely liked Mm -hmm. that they had brought in and then the coach was like ah this roster isn't good enough um so don't fire me because obviously you guys in the front office are the ones that suck. We're a bottom team with a bottom roster. That was what he said. Yeah, so it turns out um Yeah. So let's let's well, since we're on this point, 
Anthony Hudson fired on May 1st. Uh, they had lost in Atlanta 1-0. And then in the next two games, they lose to Vancouver by a goal at home. Lose by one to RSL at home. And then a seven-game unbeaten streak. Yeah. Their first win of the year, and then another win, draw, win, win, draw, win. Like, they fired him and got good. New England fired Brad Friedel and then got good. Uh, I guess that's, yeah. And then we look at, like, Alan Koch, and he gets fired. And if he was the problem, we would see something different happen following his the end of his employment on May 7th. We look at it. May 4th, they lose one nothing to the Quakes. He gets fired a few days later. They win their third game of the season against Montreal. Lose six in a row, including two games where they conceded five and a game where they conceded seven. And then they beat Houston by one at home. Like, if Alan Koch was the problem, something different would have happened. They're worse without him than with him i just think because you're i mean you're an expansion team and you're not atlanta you're not lafc and then you win that game against portland at home three to zero and you go and get a result on the road uh in atlanta and for some reason that doesn't buy alan Koch more time that um with with a roster that is objectively not as good clearly or or something or just yeah you know and, and and the thing is, he would have turned to the USL players at 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 a time that he would have needed to, like Heath ended up doing with Minnesota. So, yeah. At this point, though, like Connor Casey has been more successful coaching the Rapids than Alan Koch was coaching Cincinnati, and yet Alan Koch is like Alan Koch was putting up. I'm not going to say better results than New England or Colorado, but, like, at least under him, you knew... He knew what he had, and he knew how to figure something out. It might not have always worked, but he would do something. Yeah. And, I'm... and that's just not happening anymore. And it's not like USL is full of, like dumbass coaches who are all just going to lose to Alan Koch like I mean he he ran that league there's there had there had to have been something there yeah and we see and, and like multiple coaches in MLS right now came out of USL in recent years or NASL as is the case but like Mark Dos Santos in USL Giovanni Savarese in NASL uh, James O'Connor. Like, James O'Connor has Orlando looking good. Like, good, good. And Orlando might not be an immediate playoff team, but you've got a coach who's able to take full advantage of that roster, and Alan Koch was probably that guy given that roster. And it's a case where Firing the coach isn't going to fix everything, and it's definitely not going to fix this. Yeah. They're not going anywhere good anytime soon. I think that's enough 
said on FC Cincinnati, we had one more topic planned, but we're about an hour in. And we really want RP around for this business talk. Anyway, so I think we should leave it there. What do you think, John? Yeah, we'll just tease it real quick. We're angry about FC Dallas. Yeah, we're angry but about... not F- for the reasons you might not expect. Uh, yes. That, uh, plus some sort of bigger-term implications, specifically um, as it relates to USSF, which I actually didn't even get into at, in the national the women's team discussion. Um, yeah. But I, I think to one one last point to sort of tie into that and into next week i think a lot of people became cynical about the women's national team because they were understandably cynical about the federation and the men's national team and that just sort of bled over because a lot of people cover the same both both teams and um that's i mean people should try to avoid doing that but it's kind of unavoidable when you feel bad feelings about like one umbrella organization and that is in my mind related to this fc dallas um about to be mess because u.s soccer is also taking some penny pitching routes that are that's i think is really gonna affect their fan base down the line you know 10 20 years from yeah now. it's gonna really hurt it but we'll get into that next yeah. time this has been ian you are john it's also been this me been yes Porsche. i am john <laughs> this has been Front Porch Discourse. Um, catch us on things. Um, yeah.